Hello and welcome to MindShift, a podcast about innovation from UCL School of Management. I'm Vaughn Tan, an innovation and strategy researcher focusing on how organizations can flourish and adapt in times of great uncertainty. In each episode, I'll speak to one of my colleagues from the diverse community here at the School of Management, and we'll look through the lens of their research to get insight into the rapidly shifting world of business today. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. J.P. Van. JP is an associate professor of strategy at UCL School of Management, and his research examines the evolution of capitalist societies since the early 17th century and how contentious industries such as piracy and the arms industry affect economies. JP's published his research in leading academic journals, popular media outlets, and he's also published two books, including the bilingual experimental graphic novel Deja Vu. JP's current research focuses on blockchain technologies, and that's what we're going to talk to him about today. So JP, before we get into blockchain and really deep dive on that. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to be the person that you are and your research interests, how you came to those? Sure. I've studied business, but also a lot of uh, social sciences before becoming a professor. And uh, I would say that my research interests have been shaped by a particular event that, uh, that took place uh, when I was living in Amsterdam about 15 years ago. At the time, I was uh, reading a couple of books about hackers, and in one of those books, they were they were called the pirates of cyberspace, and I was very intrigued by that terminology. And anyway, at the time, living in Amsterdam, I uh, passed by the Maritime Museum, and that week they had a, a show about the history of maritime piracy. And I was quite fascinated by that. They actually had a pirate ship that was parked just across the museum. And it was a really beautiful exhibition. And while I was visiting it, I was wondering uh, about this term, piracy, and why it is that we use the same word to talk about these seamen in the 17th century that were that were attacking trading companies and also to refer to hackers in cyberspace uh, today. And this common use of the term piracy was actually uh, a question that I asked myself at the time. And that really foreshadowed a lot of my future work about how social movements and especially stigmatized social movements play a significant role in the evolution of capitalist societies, play a very significant role in triggering new waves of innovation. And from then on, I actually got into the study of Bitcoin, which I think is a movement that is closely related to piracy. Excellent. Well, I think we're going to talk a lot more about blockchain more generally and how that fits into the wider history of capitalism. But before we do that, for some of the people who may still not know, can you explain in really lay language what a blockchain is? So blockchain is a a digital database technology. And what it does is that it enables the sharing and the recording of transactions in an environment that is open, secure, and decentralized. So it lives on the internet and it basically creates this record of transactions on top of a peer-to-peer network. So it allows people to exchange value over the internet. And when you say it's open, secure, and decentralized, in what ways is it different from traditional ways of thinking about databases that store information? And how do those differences give it the utility that did not exist before, right? Which is what everyone is so excited about. So I guess the important difference would be decentralization. And decentralization is a bit of an ambiguous term. But what it means here is that no one in a blockchain network 
has privileged access to information. No one has a control over a master password, for instance. So the difference with traditional ways to exchange value over the internet is clear here. If, for instance, you are using, let's say, traditional banking to send value to a contact over the internet, there is a password that you need to use to log into your bank account, and then maybe you can do a, a wire transfer. If you lose access to that password, you can basically get in touch with your bank and have them reset it. And the reason why you can do this is because the password is stored on their servers. So there, there are centralized points in the network such as corporate servers that actually store information on behalf of everyone else. In a blockchain setting, this does not exist. It is entirely peer-to-peer -peer, and everybody can access the entire history of transactions of the entire network since day one. And so that means that it's essentially creating a network that anybody can join without necessarily having to verify their real-world identity. And so it proves very resistant to any kind of censorship. It provides an infrastructure that anybody can build on. And that is actually quite different from the internet as we know it. Cool. So it sounds like what you're saying is that where previously our models were thinking about where we store data have an idea of a central authority and also a centralized idea of truth, right? Blockchain gives you the possibility of having decentralized authority and access. And also, there is no longer a, in a sense, a central authority over truth in terms of what gets stored. Is that an accurate way of putting it? Yes, it is. The idea is to have incentives that create checks and balances on the network so that various types of users are allowed to use the network and at the same time secure the network without creating islands of power that can be used by, uh, by a central authority. Sounds very democratic. How do you think this affects sort of a lot of the areas of business that we think about as management researchers? What do you think the implications we're already seeing are? And also, what do you think the implications are that are coming down the pipe? I think a, a good analogy to understand what's at stake here is to think of other kinds of democratic ways of organizing that we already had on the internet. So think about the open source software movement. Think about Linux. Think about uh, Wikipedia. Uh, we're familiar with those. They are fairly democratic ways of organizing because you can volunteer contributions to content on Wikipedia. You can volunteer code to contribute to the Linux uh, software. And blockchain ecosystems, such as Bitcoin or Ethereum, work in a very similar way in the sense that they are open source software communities and anybody could contribute. The difference is that there is cryptocurrency that powers, that fuels these ecosystems and creates incentives, economic incentives. So if you are contributing to Linux or if you are contributing to Wikipedia, you are a volunteer contributor, meaning that you are not compensated for your work. If you are contributing to ecosystems that are relying on blockchain, you actually can get paid. And so a good way to think about blockchain ecosystems is to see them as an open source software community plus economic incentives. And so for the first time in the history of, of humankind, I would say, we have uh, a way to build organizations that can become very large, such as Bitcoin, in a decentralized fashion where contributors are actually paid, but there is no CEO, 
there are no employees and there are no managers. We've never had that before. Okay, that's really interesting. And I, I want to double click on that. Can you say why it's important or significant that you can now build these very large organizations that don't look like traditional organizations? It really changes the way we envision work because in blockchain ecosystem, a lot of the work uh, is being done without relying on the employment contract. A lot of the work is being done without having supervising managers. And a lot of the work is being done as part of nonprofit organizations that are still able to compensate their contributors. And so we have a new organizational form available to us now that sits somewhere in between the uh, traditional nonprofit open source software community and the for-profit corporation. But we are allowed to have that function at scale globally today without relying on the traditional tools of corporations, which are a managerial hierarchy and the employment contract. And so this is a spectacular development if you look back at the history of organizations and, and corporations. And in fact, I am, I am confident that one day uh, the inventors of Bitcoin will receive the uh, economics prize that's granted in the memory of Nobel. I'm confident that one day this will happen because we will look back and realize how significant this invention will have been. So let's turn now actually to talking about sort of the findings and implications of your research. But before we do that, give us a quick outline of the kind of academic work that you're doing and also what kind of practical applied work you're doing. So my entry point into Bitcoin and blockchain technology that, that underlies it was the history of piracy. It's a, it's a very unusual entry point. But looking at the history of piracy, I, I noticed uh, a pattern that I uh, elaborated upon in, in a book that I published a few years ago called The Pirate Organization, Lessons from the Fringes of Capitalism. And that pattern is the following. At various points in history, uh, since the, the development of the modern nation state, you have this notion of sovereignty that is imposed by nation states over particular domains. So if you look back at the 17th century, when international trade was developing over long distances, nation states claimed a sovereign power over portions of the oceans and the high seas. Pirates were merchants that contested sovereignty of nation states over the high seas. And essentially, they were advocating for the high seas to become a uh, public common good, which eventually it became. And it's now protected by, by the United Nations. We have something called the international waters. It is a common good of humankind. And no nation state can claim sovereignty over, over these high seas. Now, if you fast forward a couple of centuries and you look at the early days of, um, I would say, the, the, the computer industry and the early days of of the internet, we had monopolies that were created by telecommunications companies. So in the United States, you had AT&T, uh, and then you had Microsoft in the 70s. Hackers were those that were opposing the monopolies of Microsoft and AT&T. And these, these corporations were, were becoming quasi-sovereign over the, the early internet, and they were actually protected by the state at the time. The pirates of cyberspace were opposing that. Now, what is left today 
of uh, nation-state sovereignty. What is the one domain where nation-states still have full sovereignty on that has never been contested? There's only one left, and that domain is money. Money has remained the sole prerogative of nation-states, and they claim full sovereignty over money. There is, in fact, in every nation-state a monopoly on a particular currency that is the official national currency of each country. Now, these currencies can be more or less powerful at a global level. The US dollar has been the most important currency uh, for a while now. But essentially, people who have developed Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are contesting the monopoly of nation states over the domain of money. And that was the last domain that was left with full sovereignty applied by nation states. And so from that perspective, the Bitcoin movement is a piratical movement. And it is contesting sovereignty over money, and it is a significant historical development that will possibly shape the contours of a new type of capitalism, just like piracy in the 17th century did. Okay, that's extremely interesting. That's super cool. I think one thing which your earlier comment highlighted for me was this idea that you've got a new organizational form that allows organization of activity at enormous scale without the traditional methods of organization that we are familiar with from, you know, the last 200 years of organizations, right? And one of the problems that we've always tried to solve with organizations is the collective action problem. When you've got a lot of people doing something together, that's difficult. And the way that we've historically solved it is by having organizations that have contracts, that have labor relations and things like that. How do you see blockchain as a technology helping to solve the collective action problem? And what is the sort of the scope of the kinds of situations in which blockchain technologies can help solve the collective action problem? And where do you think it cannot actually do that? This is, I think, the crucial question and the crucial aspect to understand when we start talking about the potential of blockchain technology. When you start to remove managerial hierarchies from an organization, and when you start to remove the employment contract, you basically lose leverage over contributors to the organization. So if one day somebody who's like a, an important contributor to the organization decides to not work or quit, there is no leverage. They don't lose their income because there was no employment contract to begin with. And they don't have to follow the orders of anybody because there is no managerial hierarchy. So the question becomes, how do you make people work together when you don't have that kind of leverage? So I, I want to, as they say, double click on that. Can you give us some concrete examples where you think blockchain technologies and cryptocurrencies specifically might be most useful for right now? Think about the problem that Zipcar is trying to solve. Sometimes you need a vehicle for a short period of time just to run errands locally. And there's lots of vehicles that are uh, idle most of the time. So for instance, if you drove to the office this morning, Maybe your car is sitting idle in the parking lot uh, between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. And it's pretty useless. Maybe someone would like to use that car uh, during the day while you're at work before you need it again to go home. But you don't want to lend your car to a complete stranger because you don't trust that person. So the way Zipcar solves this problem is by providing their own fleet of cars uh, for people to use. Now, you could imagine a decentralized version of Zipcar that relies on users' own cars instead. And then it wouldn't need its own fleet of vehicles. So imagine I book a car with an app. It shows me where an idle car is in the neighborhood. 
and I book it. And then if I get to that car, I can unlock it with the app and it starts automatically paying the owner of the car per minute used or per kilometer uh, traveled. Now, how can we create trust in a decentralized environment like this? Well, with a decentralized database that keeps track of users' reputation and also automates the payments and insurance for every user. So you could imagine having an escrow account where you have to stake some of your money in, into the system before you can start using cars and, and borrowing cars from other users. And that basically would provide collateral. Uh, you'd have to prove, for instance, that you're insured in that decentralized database, and it would be publicly as accessible to every user of the decentralized uh, Zipcar. And so anybody could verify this information, and no one would be able to, to cheat by modifying the data uh, in a unilateral fashion. So now what happens if there's a, an incident? Maybe uh, you scratch the car while you're using it. How do you resolve a dispute around an incident? Well, you could imagine that people would have to take a, a short video of the car before using it and after using it, and this video would be shared in the database. You could ask high reputation users of the app to adjudicate the dispute. They would look at the photos and they would act as witnesses, look at the scratch, and uh, they would take a vote and they would determine a standard penalty for, for, for the scratch. And because there is a, a cryptocurrency inside the system that you have been staking as collateral, the owner of the car would get a payment for the damages and the system could keep going like this. And you could imagine that the users that contribute to the system are rewarded with cryptocurrency that exists within that system. So for instance, if you act as a witness, you're basically providing work. You could be paid for that. If you are making your vehicles available, even if people are not using them, you could be paid a small amount for that. If you are developing code to add features to the app, you could be paid for that. And so the big difference here is that with a decentralized Zipcar, uh, users don't pay fees that go to a for-profit corporation that takes a commission on every transaction, but instead, all the value that is created uh, is redistributed back to the users. And the more you contribute as a user, the more you get rewarded. And with a decentralized Zipcar, you basically would have an organization that is decentralized, that is not for profit, and that could operate without managers or with very, very few managers. And that is the alternative that decentralization is providing. I think that's really cool. So in terms of the kinds of situations where you need collective action, where decentralization might make sense as a way of organizing that collective action, do you see scope conditions like are there particular kinds of collective action problem that are better solved by blockchain technologies and other kinds of collective action problem that are not as well solved by blockchain technology? Or do you think all collective action problems could be easily solvable in this way? I think that there are areas where blockchain technology is easier to implement than others. So an example is services or transactions that are 100% digital. So let's call them digitally native. There is no tangible goods that are involved in the transaction. So it's the case with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a digital currency, but it is not tied to particular tangible goods in the world. So everything that is relevant to Bitcoin transactions can be recorded and observed and exchanged in the digital environment. As soon as you move away from 100% digitally native transactions and you start to connect blockchain with tangible goods, things become 
much harder to implement at the practical level because you cannot store a, a car in a blockchain, right? So if you need to be able to authenticate things about the car, such as its state and how much gasoline there is left in it and things like that, you basically need to be able to create proofs that are tangible and then transform them into digital evidence in a way that's reliable. So that's much harder. We can get there. And I gave examples of how we might be able to do that, but it is much more difficult. And that's why so far, the biggest, most significant blockchain applications have been digitally native applications that are not yet connected to tangible goods. So that's one first boundary and, or, or scope condition, as you said. I think a second one is applications that involve governments. And I guess uh, in, in this sense, the, the reason why Bitcoin is, is so successful is that it prevents the possibility for particular governments to behave opportunistically. So for instance, a government might decide to unilaterally debase its currency to gain an advantage over competitors in international trade. That creates a collective action problem because it basically gives a particular players an advantage, but it will hurt other players. So for instance, if you have all your you know, savings or your pension that is denominated in a particular currency when it becomes debased, uh, you are basically becoming poorer in relative terms. And uh, we see that when you when you remove this asymmetry, it becomes a lot easier to deal with currency. And I think the, the pandemic created a wonderful example of that, where suddenly all the governments in the world essentially debase their currency at the same time by injecting a lot of liquidity into the in the economies that they were trying to to boost and because they all did it at the same time it did not create a relative disadvantage for any particular country and a lot of people are were struggling and are still struggling to understand why before the pandemic we were told oh we can't increase the salaries of health workers we can't pay for pensions we can't do this we can't renovate the highways that are in a poor state. We don't have enough money for that. We have to be careful with our deficit and the national debt. And then during the pandemic, all these locks, all these constraints suddenly disappeared. And the reason why they disappeared is, is that they disappeared for everybody at once. So when all the governments act together in the same way on their currency, it does not change the relative balance of power. The problem is what happens when one particular government does it, but not the others. And that's where it becomes a problem. Bitcoin addresses this particular problem from the viewpoint of currency users, so you and I and everyone else, by creating essentially a universal alternative. So it doesn't matter what country you live in, it doesn't matter in which currency your pension is denominated in, you can always use Bitcoin as leveraged against your central bank or the government you depend on, because now you have the possibility to do so with a, a currency that is universal and exists on the internet independently of any government. And so it basically creates pressure for central banks over the world and for governments to behave more responsibly. And one direct consequence of this new balance of power is particularly visible in the developing world. The biggest impact of Bitcoin is not in wealthy Western countries. The biggest impact of Bitcoin is for people who live in countries that have unreliable governments or corrupt governments, central banks that are not reliable, 
currencies that are very volatile. And for people who live in these countries, Bitcoin is providing an alternative that essentially forces local central banks and governments to behave more responsibly with currency. It is creating new parameters for collective action problems around around currency. And this is something that is new. We had gold before that could that could act as this counterpower in the realm of, of currency, but gold is, is very impractical and you need to rely on trusted intermediaries to hold it for you, to store it for you, and to transact it for you, unless you hide it under your mattress or something like that. So Bitcoin makes gold a lot more convenient by, by creating essentially a form of digital gold that anybody can use. Very cool. There are obvious legal implications or policy implications to any kind of technology that threatens sovereignty, right? And one of the things that you've said, the the big overarching frame, I suppose, of blockchain, at least in how you've described it, is that it is a mechanism for contesting sovereignty in various spaces. I'm curious what you think the legal and policy implications are that we're already seeing, that we'll begin to see. So the legal implications are incredibly important, as you uh, rightly point out, and incredibly complicated. In a sense, when a traditional financial institution misbehaves, you can sue them. So there is there is this legal liability that creates incentives to behave properly, and regulators can control that. When you are looking at decentralized organizations, such as the ones we're building with blockchain that do not have CEOs, shareholders, or employees, you cannot do any of that stuff. So if there is a problem, let's say a giant speculative bubble that bursts and creates an economic crisis, which is something that could well happen, who do you sue? Who is responsible? It's very unclear. And that's the first big issue. Now, the second issue is an issue that involves regulatory exemptions. Some people argue, okay, if we are decentralized, should we be subject to the same regulations to begin with as centralized corporations. And they say, look, digital platforms like Facebook or YouTube, they are traditional corporations, but because their user base is somewhat decentralized, they are already benefiting from exemptions to regulation. So for instance, YouTube is immune to copyright infringement lawsuits if a user posts content that uh, potentially infringes on, on, on copyright. They have intermediary immunity in this kind of context. So people who work in the blockchain space say, well, we should also have exemptions because we're even more decentralized than, than platforms like YouTube or Facebook. And we should, we should be able to leverage that to get special treatment. And so regulators of over the world are these days considering these claims and they are trying to find ways to regulate or not platforms that are based on blockchain and do not have CEOs and managers and employees. And one way to address this question is to be able to go much deeper in the claim that a particular organization is decentralized. Put simply, we need to be able to measure the extent of decentralization if we are to regulate differently a centralized corporation like Google that owns YouTube and a decentralized organization like Ethereum. I think one question here is, is it actually about decentralization as an indicator of whether or not an entity or an organization should be subject to regulation? Or is it actually more practically about standing, right? So persons, natural and corporate, have standing and therefore they have liability. But the problem is if you have no 
personhood, which is what happens with these decentralized organizations where there is no natural or corporate person to have liability and to have standing, that's, that's where you have a, a regulatory problem, right? So is that something that either jurisprudence needs to update itself so that it can attach standing and liability to non-natural persons or non-corporate persons or to corporate non-persons? Because if it did do that, then a lot of your existing regulatory legal frameworks would then immediately apply, but in a way that would make sense. So there is, in fact, a discussion that's been taking place in the United States very recently about assigning legal personhood to particular entities within decentralized blockchain ecosystems to be able to create that leverage that you're talking about. So for instance, there were talks about whether particular players called network validators or miners in blockchain ecosystems should be regulated as if they were financial brokers. The analogy is a very shaky one, and uh, there are many differences between what they do and what a broker does. But this is something that some regulators around the world are considering. It is an ongoing conversation. There hasn't been a regulatory template in the world that has been implemented and that serves as a point of reference right now. So uh, I think there's a, there's a great opportunity actually for regulators, for governments to take the lead and really with experts come up with a framework that could create the conditions for this new economy to develop. And I think a, a country could truly create a comparative advantage for developing its own economy if they were able to come up with a regulatory framework that creates the right checks and balances for these new organizations to develop, but without, without it being the, 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 a new Wild West where any, everything and anything is possible. Before we wrap up, I have one final question. What do you think is the next innovation you see in blockchain-mediated collective organization? If there is one case uh, that becomes as successful as Bitcoin has been, that creates a decentralized ecosystem that involves tangible goods, such as cars, and that starts to operate globally and starts to grow and start to function successfully, it will create a point of reference. It will create a precedent that will fundamentally rethink the way we operate businesses. We don't yet have such a globally successful example of blockchain ecosystem that involves tangible goods and that is user-friendly. And so whichever community manages to come up with that first potentially will change the business world for you know, the next few, few decades. So I think this is the next big thing. And I would say this is the holy grail of, of blockchain at this point. Cool. That was super interesting. Lots of interesting stuff. Yeah. You've been listening to MindShift, a podcast about innovation from UCL School of Management. Today's guest was JP Verne, and we'll put links to their research in the show notes. This episode was presented by myself, Vaughn Tan, edited by Karis Bradley, and produced by UCL School of Management. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts, please subscribe to MindShift on your favorite podcasting platform.